Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to talk about dogs. Dogs have been an important part of Canadian history from the very beginning. The first dogs to arrive in Canada came from Siberia over 12,000 years ago. They were used for hunting, pulling sleds, and as companions for the indigenous people who made their way across the Bering Strait. In the 17th century, European settlers brought dogs with them as well. And like the indigenous people, they relied on their dogs for companionship, hunting, and protection. Dogs have been some of Canada's most beloved heroes. In 1909, a Labrador retriever named Polar Bear helped the explorer Robert Perry reach the North Pole. In 1916, Canadians were captivated by the story of Bruno, a sheepdog who was rescued from war-torn Europe and refused to eat after his person passed away. In 1941, a Newfoundland named Gander saved the lives of several Canadian soldiers during the Battle of Hong Kong. Over the centuries, dogs have served Canadians in an ever-expanding variety of ways. Today, they work in law enforcement, detect cancer and COVID, help find missing children, and enable the blind to get around. But for most Canadians, dogs are much more than just working animals. Their loyalty, friendship, and unconditional love have made them part of our families. Countless dogs are beloved characters in Canadian art and film. Their stories have been told by such noteworthy authors as Farley Mowat, Lucy Maud Montgomery, and Stephen Leacock. They can make us laugh, they comfort us, they remind us of our better angels, of what our character could be, and perhaps that is why we love them so much. Which brings me to my puppy, Boris. Boris is a 10-year-old Irish setter Newfoundland cross, the same breed as Gander, actually. Recently, he began hacking up his food. His bark became raspy, and he's having trouble breathing deeply, so I took him to see the vet. Boris has the canine version of Lou Gehrig's disease. His spinal cord will slowly degenerate, and over the next one to three years, he'll progressively lose control of the muscles he uses to play, bark, eat, and breathe. There is no cure, and the cause remains unknown. But there is a way to slow it down. With the laryngeal paralysis, Boris needs surgery. Without it, his constricted larynx will get worse faster, and he may pass away in only a few months. The problem is the surgery costs $5,000, which is well beyond what I can afford. So I'm asking for your help. I've set up a GoFundMe to pay for the vet. If you'd like to contribute, just click the link for Boris Fundraiser in my show notes. And if you've donated already, thank you. If you've shared, thank you as well. Thank you for helping us get a few more precious years together, because it means the world to us both. Before we begin, I want to say thank you to Leslie Y, who made a wonderful donation to the podcast. I really appreciate it, and right now, all donations and Patreon goes to helping my dog get his surgery that he needs. He's one of the most important fathers of Confederation, and he was the first Canadian politician to be assassinated. Yet today, he is mostly unknown to the majority of Canadians. Today, I'm talking about Thomas Darcy McGee, the man who was called Canada's first nationalist. Darcy McGee was born on April 13, 1825 in Carlingford, Ireland, and raised as a Roman Catholic. 
He would learn about the history of Ireland from his mother, which would have a deep impact on his life. It was also rumored his mother's family had been involved in the 1798 Irish Rebellion. His father James worked for the Coast Guard, and this caused the family to move every so often. When he was eight, McGee moved to Wexford, and it was there that his mother passed away, and his father remarried, leading McGee and his sister to leave Ireland when he was 17 because of the poor relationship with their stepmother. He would sail to the United States in 1842, one of 93,000 who crossed the Atlantic that year and arrived in Boston. It was in Boston he gave his first public address, speaking to the Boston Friends of Ireland on the 4th of July. He said, quote, The sufferings which the people of the unhappy country have endured at the hands of a heartless, bigoted, despotic government are well known to you. Her people are born slaves and bred in slavery from the cradle. They know not what freedom is, end quote. This raised his profile among the Irish immigrants, and he was asked to join the staff of the Boston Pilot, a Catholic newspaper. He started out as a traveling agent, spending two years traveling around New England, collecting overdue accounts and new subscribers. At the same time, he lectured to the Irish population of New England, talking of the movements of the Irish independence movement. He would also write 40 articles for the Pilot during that time, with his first editorial appearing on April 13, 1844, his 19th birthday. That same year, he published his first book, Eva MacDonald, A Tale of the United Irishman, and a second followed the next year, Historical Sketches of O'Connell and His Friends. At the same time, he believed that Canada and the United States should become one country. He would write, quote, Either by purchase, conquest, or stipulation, Canada must be yielded by Great Britain to this republic. End quote. His views were reinforced when the United States annexed Texas in 1845 and after the Oregon boundary dispute with Britain. When told that the Canadian government was more tolerant to the Catholics, he questioned if that was truly the case. He would go back to Ireland in 1845 where he edited the Freeman's Journal, and in 1847 he married Mary Teresa Caffrey. They would have six children. In Ireland, he also wrote two more books, The Gallery of Irish Writers in 1846 and A Memoir of the Life and Conquests of Art McMurrow in 1847. It was around this time he became involved in the Irish Confederation and the Young Irelander Rebellion of 1848. He would speak throughout Ireland to support the leaders of the Irish Confederation. But due to his involvement, a warrant for his arrest was issued, and he would flee Ireland dressed as a priest, arriving back in the United States. The New Orleans Crescent wrote on October 28, 1848, quote, the British papers state that Mr. McGee is still somewhere in Ireland, and the British government is very anxious to catch him, but he is in Philadelphia, and it is said he looks very well unhung. In the United States, he blamed the Irish clergy for the failure of the rebellion, and he started his own newspaper called The Nation. Before long, he began to alienate Irish Republicans in New York when he began to support a new Irish reform movement that planned to work within the Irish Constitution. He also antagonized the Bishop of New York because of his support for the Roman Republic against Pope Pius IX. Due to the opposition towards him, he left New York in 1850 and moved to Boston, where he started the American Celt and adopted Citizen newspaper. He would tour through the United States giving speeches about writings. The Washington Sentinel wrote, quote, The saloon was well filled and he was listened to with marked attention, all evidently concurring in the ability in which he handled the subject. Well, may Ireland be proud of her many gifted sons. End quote. In 1851, he published A History of the Irish Settlers in North America as a means to show the contributions the Irish had made to North America. 
and he continued to make speeches around the United States about the Irish and their impact on the country. In Portland, Maine, on November 18, 1851, the Portland Press-Herald wrote, quote, Mr. McGee, on rising and throughout his address, was warmly and repeatedly cheered. He gave an interesting account of the six gentlemen whose liberation was asked, end quote. He returned to New York in 1853 and for the next four years worked on behalf of Catholic interests in the United States. He also wrote three more books, but was gradually becoming more critical of the United States, stating that American society needed the influence of Catholicism to balance its disorderly tendencies. Despite his belief earlier in life that the two countries should become one, he now accused the Americans of being expansionistic and having their eyes on Canada. In 1855, he began to advocate for an Irish colony in the western portion of the continent. His advocation for an Irish colony in the western frontier would earn him the nickname of Moses McGee among his critics. In his various talks on the topic, he would cause some to get quite mad at him. During one lecture in Boston, it was said in the National Era on February 1, 1855, quote, In the course of his lecture, some of his remarks were construed by a few of the audience into a disrespect for the memory of Washington, and led to much confusion and some severe fighting in the hall. The row was soon quelled, and the disturbers ejected from the premises. Quote. He would organize a conference in Buffalo that was attended by hundreds of delegates to plan a colony, but Catholic leaders in New York prevented much progress from being made, and the plan was abandoned. In 1857, McGee moved to Canada and settled in Montreal on the invitation of the city's Irish community. He did this because Canada was more hospitable to Catholic Irish immigrants than the United States was at the time. McGee began to push, through his writings and newspapers and books, that Canada be devoted to the British Empire, feeling it was the only way to protect itself against the Americans. Maclean's would write of him in 1962, quote, Thomas Darcy McGee, the shrewd Irish member for Montreal, advocated Confederation as a measure of defense. But McGee was always advancing fresh reasons in favor of Confederation, and it was a little while before he was taken seriously. End quote. On May 28, 1857, the MacArthur Democrat out of Ohio wrote quote, Thomas Darcy McGee, disgusted with his countrymen, the Irish, who refused to aid in the election of Fremont last fall, has retired from the American Celt, which he edited, and has gone to Montreal, Canada, where he will be more at home. End quote. In Canada, upon his arrival, he set up the New Era, a newspaper that allowed him to attack various organizations. He would also write to promote modernizing the economic development of Canada through the building of railroads, increased immigration, and the application of a high protective tariff to encourage manufacturing within the province of Canada. He would also advocate for making Canada a place where religious minorities could coexist and have their rights completely respected. He would write, quote, the one thing needed for making Canada the happiest of homes is to rub down all sharp angles and to remove those asperities which divide our people on questions of origin and religious profession. The man who says this cannot be done is a blockhead. End quote. In December 1857, McGee was elected to the Legislative Assembly. The Milwaukee Daily Sentinel wrote, quote, Thomas Darcy McGee has been nominated for the Canadian Parliament by the Irish citizens of Montreal, who claim one member from that city on the strength of their population. End quote. In one of his first speeches as a politician in Canada on December 15, 1857, he would immediately attack the Orangemen, which would anger many Protestants. He would say, quote, The existing ministry, I'm sorry to be compelled to say, are acting in a great degree under the dictation of the Orange Confederacy. 
the new Prime Minister has officially been approved by the Grand Lodge as a habitue of the Conclave, a legal advisor of their courses and a warm advocate of theirs by the Act of Parliament. End quote. Three years later, he earned a law degree from McGill University. At this point, he had long abandoned his previous ways when it came to Irish nationalism, and he felt that it had no place in Canada, something that would anger a group called the Fenians. He would write, quote, We have no right to intrude our Irish patriotism on this soil, for our first duty is to the land where we live and have fixed our homes. End quote. He would write about the Fenians in the Montreal Gazette, stating, quote, Secret societies are like what the farmers in Ireland used to say of Scotch grass. The only way to destroy it is to cut it out by the roots and burn it with powder. End quote. I want to talk about the local history atlas. This was created by one of my listeners, Ben Woodward, and it's fantastic. It's this wonderful website where you can see a, a Google Maps image of Canada, and you can visit all of the places in Canada. And within these places are my local history podcast episodes that you can listen to. And one of the great things about it is you can add to it. You can put your own pictures in. You can put your own information. It's creating this wonderful historical mosaic of Canada. And it's a wonderful website. Uh, I have the link in my show notes. But if you also want to visit yourself, it's atlas.digitalhistory.ca. And we can create this wonderful mosaic of Canada's history. All of us, you can learn about Canada's history. If you're going on a road trip, you can use this wonderful site to see where you're going and the amazing things that you can see. So be sure to check it out. McGee would support the short-lived reform government of George Brown in 1858, and he would develop a political organization among Irish Catholics of Canada West. He also developed the idea of using the Irish national school system as a model for solving the school problems in Canada West. This was widely attacked by the Roman Catholic Church in Canada, which hurt the Reform Party under Brown. McGee would then split with Brown when a separate school bill was introduced and Brown's newspaper, The Globe, did not support it. In 1863, McGee became the Minister of Agriculture, Immigration, and Statistics. It was around this time he began to be a more vocal advocate of Confederation, and he would organize tours of the Maritimes for delegates from the province of Canada, where he gave speeches in favor of a union with British North America. He would say at one stop, quote, I invoke the fortunate genius of a united British America to solemnize law with the moral sanction of religion and to crown our fair pillar of freedom with its only appropriate capital, lawful authority, so that, hand in hand, we and our descendants may advance steadily to the accomplishment of our common destiny, End quote. In 1864, McGee became an open supporter of Confederation, and he would attend both the Charlottetown and Quebec conferences. At the conferences, he advocated for the guarantee of educational rights of religious minorities within the country. No longer following the radical Irish nationalist views of his youth, McGee then denounced the Fenian Brotherhood, which advocated for a takeover of Canada by the United States to force Britain to leave Ireland. This gave him the moniker of traitor by those in the Irish community that he had agreed with in the past. In 1865, he was part of the Canadian delegation to the Dublin International Exposition, and he addressed an audience in Wexford, where he'd grown up and spoke of his life as an Irish immigrant in Canada and the United States. He would say that his career as an Irish rebel was one of follies. His speech attracted attention throughout Ireland, the United States, Britain, and Canada. The weekly British Whig wrote, quote, 
Mr. McGee was well received by his fellow townsmen, and as the audience was composed of persons of all creeds, classes, and politics, he was able to speak his mind freely. He is not ashamed of young Ireland. They were honest in their folly. If he was a fool at 20, there was no reason why he shouldn't be at 40. End quote. By the time 1866 came around, the Irish constituents in Montreal were unhappy with him, and he was not invited to the London Conference of 1866, nor was he included in the First Dominion Government. He was also expelled from the St. Patrick's Society, and the Society's president ran against him in the first Canadian federal election. In that federal election, McGee was elected in Montreal West to the first Canadian Parliament. One can associate the residential school system with tuberculosis and tuberculosis with the residential school system. We had indigenous parents, communities, students, church employees, teachers, and individuals who are part of Indian Affairs, like Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce, giving their critiques in their own time. People hid when the tuberculosis screening came to their communities because they knew that the result of getting screened was that they, they could be taken away. I believe a lot of people were used, government officials who just thought they were doing the right thing. They were doing what they were told. First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples are already told our story. It's now time to tell the other side of the story. We need to take a serious look at the parts of the system from the past that we may be replicating today. I'm Maya Foster Sanchez, and this is the story of a national crime. Coming this fall, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Despite winning his seat, he wanted to leave politics, and Sir Johnny MacDonald promised to give him a civil service post. McGee also wanted to put his attention to literature and Canadian history. Unfortunately, it was not to be. On April 7, 1868, McGee was shot outside his Ottawa home. The Kingston British Whig stated, quote, As he reached his door and was in the act of opening it, a pistol shot was fired at him from behind, the ball entering the back of his head and escaping through his mouth, breaking several teeth. His lodging housekeeper, who was up, alarmed by the shot, opened the front door when Mr. McGee fell heavily into the entrance, quite dead. End quote. Before long, Ontario Premier John Sanford MacDonald and Prime Minister John A. MacDonald, no relation, were on the scene, as were other members of Parliament. His body was then transported to Montreal. The Ottawa Daily Citizen wrote, quote, The special train conveying the remains arrived precisely at 5 o'clock yesterday. The station was draped in mourning. A large number of citizens accompanied the hearse to the late residence of the deceased. Here, the body was placed in the dining room and the public admitted to view the face, which was visible through the glass lid of the coffin. McGee's funeral procession would run through Montreal, flanked by a crowd of 80,000 people, or roughly 75% of the city's population. Several schools would be let out and students would attend the funeral. The Montreal Gazette wrote of the funeral, quote, Never since Jacques Cartier first planted the foot of a European on the site on which now stands the great city of Montreal, was there ever before a demonstration, either funeral or other, within its borders such as that which took place yesterday. End quote. The day after McGee was shot, 40 people, mostly Irish immigrants, were arrested including Patrick Buckley, the stable hand to Prime Minister Johnny MacDonald, who would implicate someone else, Patrick Whelan. Whelan was arrested at 9.30 a.m. that day, and in his pocket was a Smith & Weston pistol with all six rounds still loaded. Before long, the newspapers began to attack Whelan's character heavily. The Montreal Star wrote, quote, 
Patrick Whelan was sent down for two months as a vagrant. He is reported insane. End quote. Whelan had come to Canada from Ireland in 1865 and worked as a tailor in Quebec City and actually fought as a volunteer against the Fenians, but his actions led some to believe he had sympathy for them and he was arrested but released without charge. He would move to Montreal in 1867 and married a woman named Boyle, who was 30 years older than him and a member of the upper class. On December 31, 1867, Whelan had apparently gone to the home of McGee and warned him that people were plotting to burn the house down in the middle of the night. He was given a note to give to the police station relating to the alleged arson attempt, which he delivered at 4.45 a.m. in the morning. On March 17, 1868, he would also serve as the assistant marshal of the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Ottawa. The main evidence against Whelan was a witness named Lacroix, who pointed him out as the murderer. The Ottawa Daily Citizen wrote, quote, He was taken to the county jail and there picked out the prisoner Whelan as the murderer from a party of some 15 persons, all of whom were strangers to him. End quote. The sheriff named Powell had made Whelan dress himself in the clothes he had apparently been wearing the night of the shooting before he was identified by Lacroix. Lacroix had said, quote, I think this is the one who fired the shot. I recognize him by his size and way of acting. End quote. During the trial, Prime Minister John A. Macdonald sat next to the judge while evidence was heard, which is insane. Agnes Macdonald was also watching the trial, and she called Whelan a small, mean-looking man in her diary. On the last day of the trial, which lasted eight days, Whelan would say, quote, Now I am held to be a black assassin, and my blood runs cold, but I am innocent. I never took that man's blood. End quote. On September 15, 1868, Whelan was found guilty. Whelan would tell the jury after the sentence was laid down, quote, I am held to be a murderer. I am here standing on the brink of my grave, and I wish to declare to you and to my God that I am innocent, that I never committed this deed, End quote. On February 11, 1869, Pactor James Whelan would be hanged for the assassination of McGee. Whelan was accused, convicted, and subsequently hanged for his crime. Many to this day still believe that he was nothing more than a scapegoat for a Protestant plot. As I said, Whelan maintained his innocence throughout the proceedings, but the government needed somebody to blame. Most of the evidence against him was circumstantial, and there was allegations of the bribing of witnesses to ensure a guilty verdict. Whelan would be hanged in front of 5,000 people, and it was said that he met his death with manliness and faith. He told the crowd he was innocent, but he did know who killed McGee. His last words were, God save Ireland, and God save my soul. According to the weekly British Whig, Whelan stated, quote, I am prepared, but I am not the man who done the deed. There are others. No matter now, I am under oath, and I won't break it. End quote. This was the second last public hanging in Canadian history. Today, Thomas Darcy McGee is honoured throughout Canada and Ireland, where several monuments have been built to recognise him. In 2012, the Thomas Darcy McGee Summer School in Ireland was named for him, the Thomas Darcy McGee Building on Spark Street in Ottawa is also named for him, as are four schools in Canada in Ontario and Quebec. The provincial riding, Darcy McGee in Quebec, is also named for him. And on the day of his death, 150 years later, Irish Montrealers, including some of McGee's own descendants, came out to his gravesite to hold a service and honour this father of Confederation. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Thomas Darcy McGee, Next week, we're looking at Canadians in Early Hollywood. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, 
and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Martin Strache, Sarah White, Tom McMillan, Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Keelan Prignitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobbs, Robert Page, Richard T., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nixon Ree, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rois, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Maclean's Biography, CBC, Wikipedia, HistoryMuseum.ca, New Orleans Crescent, The National Era, Portland Press Herald, MacArthur Democrat, Kingston Wake Standard, Ottawa Daily Citizen, and The Montreal Star. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.